Are You a Grace Killer? Pastor and author Chuck Swindoll talks about grace killers in his book, Grace Awakening. But the Apostle Paul spoke about grace killers long before Chuck Swindoll. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 12, Paul condemns those who kill grace. Grace killers are Christians who destroy the principle of grace either in their own lives or in the lives of others. Grace killers are people who add works as the means of achieving righteousness before God. Paul tells us in Galatians 5 that legalists are grace killers. A legalist is not a Christian who believes in keeping the law. A legalist keeps the law to be a Christian. A legalist is someone who believes that observance of the law can make us right with God. Legalism relies on good works to earn God's approval. A legalist places his or her faith in obeying rules rather than trusting Christ for salvation. In other words, a legalist substitutes works for grace, trusting in what he or she does instead of what Christ did. Legalists are grace killers, and grace killers produce bondage. Galatians 5, verses 2 through 6. Grace killers produce bondage. Paul explains three forms of bondage that grace killers produce. First, they produce the bondage of negating Christ in verse 2. Paul writes, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. The Galatians were faced with a particular kind of legalism that we don't face today. The form of legalism that they faced required the right of circumcision to secure God's favor. The Jewish legalists who came to the Gentile churches in Galatia argued that they were not really saved until they were circumcised. Yes, they must believe in Jesus Christ, but they must also be circumcised according to the Jewish law in order to be truly saved, in order to have full salvation. The legalists were adding works to the gospel. They were adding a ritual to the gospel. It was faith plus works to be right with God. Now, Paul is not saying that circumcision itself is wrong. The surgical act is neither right nor wrong. Circumcision is wrong as an act you do to gain God's approval. Spirituality can never come by performing some special rite or observing certain rules. If you make your spiritual life equal Christ plus works, then God makes your spiritual life equal works minus Christ, and works minus Christ never works. Adding works as a means of salvation means subtracting Christ. As one writer put it, a Christ supplemented is a Christ supplanted. So you have a choice, my friends. In their situation, the choice was circumcision or Christ. Today, it is often ritual or relationship. And you can't have it both ways. You either rely on rituals or a relationship for your spiritual life. You either rely on works or grace for your righteousness. 
And the choice is simple. The terms are mutually exclusive. If you rely on one, then you nullify the other. If you rely on works, then you negate Christ. He is of no benefit to you. That's why I'm always very careful to point out that neither baptism nor communion saves a person. That would be to negate Christ. Second, grace killers produce the bondage of obeying the law in verse 3. Paul writes, And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Paul says, look, you think you're just adding one little ritual to your faith in Christ. Think again. That ritual now obligates you to fulfill the whole law. If you are going to live by the law, then you must live by the whole law, not just the parts you choose. After all, what is a passing grade with God? In first century Judaism, the school of Hillel said that keeping 51% of the Mosaic law meant you passed with God. But the school of Shammai said that even keeping 99% of the law meant you had failed. Paul says that nothing short of a score of 100% would pass with God. It's perfectionism or bust. Salvation is either all of law or it is none of the law. Salvation is either all of Christ or it is none of Christ. We have a choice between a whole Christ or a whole law. We do not have the option of mixing and matching those parts we like and those parts we don't like. If we have to do anything to gain God's approval, then we must do everything. We must be perfect. So perfectionism becomes bondage. Third, grace killers produce the bondage of falling from grace. The bondage of falling from grace in verses 4 through 6. Listen to what Paul says. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. We come in this verse to an expression that a great many Christians are interested in understanding. It is the expression, you have fallen from grace. Dr. Ironside told a story about a humorous little dialogue which a Methodist friend of his had with another man. A man came up to this Methodist minister and said, I understand that you Methodists believe in falling from grace. Is that so? The Methodist minister replied, I understand that you Presbyterians believe in horse stealing. Is that so? The Presbyterian replied, No, of course we do not. To which the Methodist said, Well, don't you believe that it's possible for a man to steal a horse? The Presbyterian said, Yes, but we wouldn't do it. The Methodist said then, Well, we believe it is possible to fall from grace, but we do not believe in doing it. 
Friends, I want to tell you that I believe it is possible for a man to fall away from grace. Paul said so in this verse, so I have to believe it. However, I think we had better define what Paul is talking about here. The verb translated fallen was used of withered flowers whose petals fall to the ground. It was also a nautical term, meaning to run aground or drift off course in your boat. Generally, the verb meant to lose your grip on something. To fall from grace was to lose your grip on grace. There are two expressions in verse 4 that explain how Paul is using the term. The first expression is translated, you have been severed from Christ. And the second expression is, you are seeking to be justified by law. The word severed can be translated in a wide variety of ways in Scripture. Its basic sense is to make something idle or render something invalid. In this case, Christ. You make Christ invalid. Now, who is making Christ invalid? Those who seek to be justified by the law make Christ invalid. The point Paul is making is that when you accept law-keeping as a means of justification, then you nullify Christ. You make Christ ineffective when you substitute law for grace. This is the same point that Paul made in verse 2. If you accept circumcision as necessary for salvation, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. Christ is made ineffective in our lives when we turn to works righteousness and performance Christianity. We make our relationship with Christ ineffective when we function on the basis of the works principle. Listen very carefully because this is important. To fall from grace means to lose your grip on grace. When we practice law-keeping as a method for salvation, we fall away from grace as the method of salvation. The works principle for salvation nullifies the grace principle. So to use the nautical meaning, grace runs aground on works like a boat runs aground on a sandbar. What does it mean to fall from grace? Falling from grace does not mean that we lose our salvation whenever we sin. You do not fall from grace when you sin. You fall into grace when you sin. The works principle says that you can keep yourself saved, but the grace principle says that God's grace keeps you saved. You are in the grip of his grace. And when you sin, you have the opportunity to experience God's grace. So what does it mean to fall from grace? It means to stop using grace as the operating principle of your spiritual life. You may be a Christian, but you are no longer using the grace principle for righteousness. You are relying on the works principle for your righteousness. Any person who says, I am saved by grace, but I must stay saved by my own efforts, has fallen from grace, like the petals of a flower wither and fall to the ground. It has nothing to do with whether he will go to heaven or not. 
It has everything to do with how he lives the Christian life. I do not care what you think you must do to be saved or to remain saved. You have fallen from grace when you think that your salvation depends on what you do to remain saved. I hear Christians say that they have committed this sin or that sin, so they must not be saved anymore. My friends, you cannot lose your salvation because you committed a particular sin. Your sin is an opportunity to experience God's grace. You fall from grace when you think you must do things to stay in grace. Falling from grace has nothing to do with whether you keep your salvation or lose your salvation. Falling from grace has to do with how you live the Christian life. You either live the Christian life by grace, or you live the Christian life by works. And if you live by works, you have fallen from grace. That's why Paul goes on in verses 5 and 6 to point out that the Christian life is lived through the Holy Spirit by faith. It is never maintained by works. We trust Christ by faith to produce his grace in us by his Spirit. And that is the essence of grace living. Anything else is grace killing. Paul tells us in verse 5, that hope springs from faith. Our hope for righteousness comes not from the law and not from our works. Our hope for God's righteousness comes from our faith in God's grace. Then Paul says in verse 6 that love springs from faith. The loving actions we perform are the result of our believing hearts, not the other way around. Good works are the product of salvation, not the means of salvation. Martin Luther said that the apple comes from the tree, not the tree from the apple. We must be before we can do. But when we are, we do what he wants us to do. So, my friends, grace killers produce bondage, guilt, and misery. Many Christians are living in bondage because they have fallen from grace. Dr. Paul Brand told about an experience he saw of phantom limb pain. As you know, many amputees feel great pain, even though the limb that has been amputated, of course, is no longer there. His medical school administrator was a man named Mr. Barwick, and he experienced phantom limb pain. Mr. Barwick was a man who had a serious ailment with his leg, requiring the leg to be amputated. And he asked the doctor what they did with the leg after they amputated it. The doctor replied that they usually incinerate it. Mr. Barwick had a strange request. He said, I would like you to preserve my leg in a pickling jar. I will install it on my mantel shelf. Then, as I sit in my armchair, I will taunt that leg and say, Ha! You can't hurt me anymore. He got his request. But the leg had the last laugh. Mr. Barwick suffered phantom limb pain of the worst kind. Somehow, that pain from the hated leg had so lodged in his head that he experienced intense pain from the leg that he no longer had. 
I think this is a great illustration of what Paul is talking about in these verses. Grace killers are like Mr. Barwick and his phantom limb pain. We know intellectually that our sin is forgiven by grace, but we cannot stop resurrecting our sin and our guilt. We try to atone for our sin and so fall from grace because grace alone atones for sin. We experience the pain and the misery of sin every time we fall from grace as the means of salvation. My friends, when Christ forgives you, he really forgives you. The sin is gone. It is dealt with on the cross when you confess it to him. You do not have to live with the guilt any longer. You must take that on faith because you can never pay for grace. So grace killers produce bondage and that is why secondly, grace killers deserve condemnation. Grace killers deserve condemnation in verses 7 through 12. Look at what Paul says in verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The Galatians had started well in the Christian life, but then they met the legalizers, and the legalizers hindered, prevented, or thwarted them from obeying the truth. The Greek word that Paul uses here is a military term used for breaking up a road so that the enemy cannot follow. It's also an athletic term for cutting in front of another runner in a race. This is the sad fact about legalism. Legalism affects others in the church. That is why it must not be tolerated. We must condemn legalism. There were probably many in the Galatian church who had the attitude that this was just a small matter. They might have said something like, let's overlook this theological issue and just love one another. After all, we're all Christians. Theological issues just divide us. So let's not talk about theology anymore. Benjamin Franklin supposedly made this comment. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. And for want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. All this for want of a horseshoe nail. Theological issues are not small matters because our entire spiritual lives stand on theology. Paul is not being very gentle when he condemns the grace killers in these verses. He takes this theological matter seriously because it is. False theology leads many believers into misery. God never intended our spiritual lives to be miserable. Our misery comes from false beliefs that lead to false actions. So Paul gives four reasons why grace killers deserve condemnation. First, grace killers lead people away from Christ in verse 8. Paul writes, This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. 
The message of legalism does not originate with Christ who calls us to salvation. The message of legalism originates elsewhere. Paul implies that their message came from Satan since he is the source of evil in this world. Grace killers deserve condemnation because they lead people away from the source of life, which is Christ. He is the one who calls us. Second, grace killers deserve condemnation because they contaminate the life of the church in verse 9. Paul writes in verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. So legalizers are like yeast in a batch of dough. It does not take much yeast to contaminate the whole batch of dough. In the same way, it does not take much false teaching to contaminate the entire church. A little legalism goes a long way as it permeates the life of the church. This is not a minor doctrine. It cuts to the heart of Christianity. The third reason for condemnation in verse 10 is that grace killers disturb the confidence of believers. They cut off other runners in the Christian race. Paul writes, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. Paul is confident that they will respond to the message of the gospel and reject the message of legalism, but he points out that these legalizers are disturbing the confidence of the Galatians. The Galatians will be okay, but the false teachers will face the burden of God's judgment one day. The word for disturb is a word which means to shake back and forth. I think of how a cat shakes the mouse until it breaks its neck. Legalism shakes the confidence of believers in Christ. They begin to wonder and doubt their own salvation. They sin and begin to wonder now if they're really saved at all. When we preach legalism, we undermine the confidence of the gospel and people begin to be weighed down under the heavy weight of obligations, and regulations, and rituals and requirements. Sadly, preachers can end up being the biggest disturbers of the church through legalism. And finally, in verses 11 and 12, grace killers nullify the scandal of the cross. They nullify the scandal of the cross. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Apparently, Paul had been accused of occasionally teaching circumcision since on certain occasions he suggested it. For example, he had the young half-Jew named Timothy circumcised in Acts 16 verse 3. Paul responds to that accusation by noting that if that was true, then why was he still persecuted? The message of Christianity involves a certain offense to humanity. The word that Paul uses here for stumbling block is the Greek word from which we get our English word scandal. It was actually used to describe the stick which holds up a trap and came to mean that which trips someone up or traps them. 
The cross offends or trips up people because it proves that we cannot be good enough for God. The offense of the cross is that Christ alone can save us by his death for our sins. Humans do not want to acknowledge that truth, so they invent religious rules and regulations so that a person can earn his own way to heaven. Do-it-yourself religion is the path of self-pride. Grace offends the pride of the do-it-yourself moralist. When you try to earn your own way to heaven, you nullify the offense of the gospel. The scandal of the cross is that you cannot earn your way to heaven. If you are listening to this sermon seeking to be good enough for God so that he will let you into heaven, then you're in for a big shock, a rude awakening. God says that the only way to heaven is through the cross. And if you find that offensive, then you cannot be saved. Accept the scandal of the cross and realize that salvation comes only when you accept the fact that your sin crucified the Savior. Paul goes on to express his zeal about this issue in verse 12. Some versions make verse 12 sound like Paul is saying that the legalizers ought to be cut off from the church. But Paul is really being very graphic, almost vulgar here in his statement. That is how upset he is by the legalizers. Paul says that if they are going to require circumcision for salvation, they might as well go all the way and castrate themselves. That's how seriously Paul takes this issue of legalism. This is not a trifling matter. Grace killers deserve condemnation because they are nullifying the very heart of Christianity, Jesus Christ. Legalism may seem like it is very moral, very upright, very pious and religious. Legalism may seem like it is very spiritual. Legalism may seem like it is splitting theological hairs over minor matters. But legalism isn't any of the above. If you give room for legalism in even a single area of your life, you give room for the devil to destroy you with false guilt. A missionary once heard a pastor in Haiti tell a story about a man who wanted to buy a house from another man. The seller wanted $2,000 for the house, but the buyer did not have enough money to pay for it. The seller offered to sell the house to him for $1,000 on one condition. The seller would retain ownership of one tiny nail protruding over the front door. Well, after several years, the original owner wanted to buy the house back, but the new owner was unwilling to sell the house. So the first owner went out and found the carcass of a dead dog and hung it from the nail over the door, since he owned that nail. Soon the house became unlivable, and the family was forced to sell the house back to the owner 
of the nail. And that, my friends, is the way it is with legalism. If you leave legalism even one nail on your spiritual house, you will find that you have nullified Jesus Christ. You will live in misery instead of joy. You will have fallen from grace, though you inherit eternal life. You will never know the delight of life with Christ as long as you allow legalism to own one nail in your spiritual house. My friends, legalists are grace killers. Are you?